G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. This podcast is made available by Vision Christian Media, thanks to the generosity of our supporters. Your donation today means great podcasts like this remain available to help people look to God daily. Please make your donation today at vision.org.au. My motivation this morning is not to catalyze guilt. That's not my purpose, but instead gratitude. Hi, and welcome to Today with Jeff Vines. Today it's a new message called When God Exits. Pastor Jeff is shining a light on the Western world and how much we have in terms of opportunity and monetary wealth. But is this a direct result of our attitude towards God? What if only a small segment of the population turns their heart toward God? Will God bless a nation like that? Blessing both the righteous and the unrighteous at the same time? And third, how many souls meet the quota before God turns the tide and heals this land? This is Today with Jeff Vines. I'd like to ask if you would uh, to stand for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to read this. I'm going to read it once and then uh, we'll read it together. It's out of 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now let's do that together. Here we go. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Okay, you can be seated. For those of you who've uh, known me for a while, you're wondering why this is here, the pulpit. It's here because uh, this is a little bit more of a formal uh, day for me. I have a great respect for this country. I've said when I'm uh, injured or I bleed, I bleed red, white, and blue. And that I am an American all the way through. And I'm convinced that this 4th of July weekend, there are going to be many pastors bringing sermons from the pulpits of this nation who are going to talk about the horrible situation America is in. And I will confess there are some things that are true about that. The jobless rate is forever on the increase and the economic situation is entering the realm of that old classic cliche that it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. However, as someone who's lived outside of the U.S. for most of his adult life, I can tell you America is the greatest country on the earth. When I see some of these men and women who serve our country in the military up here on the stage, there's a sense of awe and respect. They remind me that this country is worth fighting for. And when I hear people complain about America, I can't help but to think back to my Zimbabwe days of swollen bellies of the children all throughout Africa who would do anything just to have one decent meal a day. Just one would be a dream world for them. There are people still today in Zimbabwe who will work all day in hopes of a bowl of cornmeal mush or sudza at the end of the day, and they seldom get it. I hear people today uh, complain about the health care situation in America. And I think about those places in the world where health care is non-existent or places where in most of the world, if you have a medical 
issue, a major medical issue, that you're going to go in some line and you're going to hope that your number or name is called before the disease kills you. And what I hear of young people, I'm sorry, got to come after you a little bit, complain that the government should give you everything you want and need. I think of the rest of the world who live in constant fear of the government, taking their homes, their land, and even their lives. Now, I know there are other places in the world where you are afforded the privilege of making a living and doing that which is necessary to survive. But in America, man, a person from the time he or she is born is presented with numerous opportunities, not only to survive, but to thrive. And when I hear people complain they don't make enough money, I think about the fact that if a person earns $34,000 or more, that you're in the top 4% of wage earners in the world. 96% of the world is poorer than you. Or if you earn up to $45,000 as an individual or a household, then you are more wealthy than 99% of the rest of the world. You're in the top 1% of income earners. I just, I'm concerned that we're just not as grateful that we should be. Not too long ago, the Vines family lost the water supply for a day. One would have thought the end of the world had come. Echoing through the hallowed halls of the Vines estate were phrases of violent protest. Dad, can't you get the water fixed? Dad, I have to wash my hair. Dad, I need to take a shower. Dad, what am I supposed to do? Die of thirst? And all that just from our dog Milo. <laughs> Yet the reality is one billion people in the world today don't have clean drinking water. 800 million will not eat today. One billion live on one dollar or less a day. Now, I know you don't want to hear this, and I'm not sure I enjoy saying it, but I go back to our broke series and what we learned, that my favorite dessert is ice cream. We all love it. But when I think about the fact, as the experts tell us, that America could feed and nourish the entire world in need for about $20 billion a year, and that's what people in the United States of America spend on ice cream in a given 12-month period. My motivation this morning is not to catalyze guilt. That's not my purpose. But instead, gratitude. Gratitude for this great country. Its beauty, its provision, its opportunity. Indeed, America has been blessed with much more than it needs. But this brings me to what I believe to be one of the most penetrating questions of life in the life of an American, and one that I'm, I promise you is going to offend many. That's never stopped me before. Is it possible that the blessings we enjoy here in America correspond to our beliefs and practices? Does God pour out his blessings on those who fear, respect, and honor him and withhold it from those who do not? We know that no man or nation or people group is perfect. Now stay with me. But is it possible that God looks at the heart and the will and the intent of a people and then pours out his blessings on those whose hearts are bent toward him? That's my first question. Second question, what if only a small segment of the population turns their heart toward God? Will God bless a nation like that? Blessing both the righteous and the unrighteous at the same time? And third, how many souls meet the quota? How many righteous people must turn to God before God turns the tide and heals this land? You know, after Solomon completed the task of building the temple, God was pleased. And this is what God said to Solomon, realizing that the people's hearts had been turned to him. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Then he goes on to say in verse 15, now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers. My eyes and my heart will always be there. It appears to me that in God's economy, there's a correlation between a will and a heart of a nation determined to follow God and God's determination and willingness to bless that land. But does it have to be a majority in the land? What is the number of those who must turn? When God wanted to destroy the city of Sodom, 
Abraham asked the same question. Here's how it goes. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. If you know the rest of the story, Abraham goes into a little bit of bargaining with God. Okay, God, what if I find 45? Will you say that? What if I find just 30? What if I find just 20? What if I find God just 10? And God's response in verse 32, if I find 10 righteous people, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Indeed, if you read the Bible, you will discover a God who is gracious and patient and long-suffering, who often gives blessings to those who consider themselves even to be his enemies. Jesus said in Matthew 5, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your father. What's the demonstration of sons of our father? That he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, he says, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing the same? So when the righteous call on the name of God, and he hears their prayers, and he releases his divine energy into their situation, healing a nation, and in such situation, even the wicked prosper under the blessings of the righteous. I say all this to tell you it's times for Christians to be asking the right questions, especially American Christians. And it's this, number one, what got us here? Why are we so blessed the way we are? You had no doing in where you were born. Why are we so blessed? What are the causes and effects of the blessings of God on this nation? Now, for most Christians, it's not rocket science. It makes sense to us. This country was founded on the premise that God exists and he is the sovereign over this land. Does that mean that our founding fathers were perfect? No. Were they men of total unadulterated purity? Hardly. Was their intention to create a nation whose leaders acknowledge the sovereignty of God? Yes. Did they expect that sovereign God to lead them and guide them to everything that was right and good? Absolutely. Abraham Lincoln, perhaps one of the greatest minds ever to have lived, delivered a powerful speech at his second inaugural address. The speech contained only 700 words. Critics held it as a speech without parallel, never to be equaled. 14 times in the speech that contained only 700 words, President Lincoln refers to God, his power, his providence, his sovereignty over the affairs of human beings. And the President of the United States ends his speech with these words, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us finish the work. Lincoln says, goodness is defined by God, rightness by the sovereign of the universe. Now, hold on a second. Am I saying that all our forefathers were born again Christians who saw Jesus as the savior of the world? No, some were, some weren't. Were our founding fathers, however, God-fearing men who believed that this nation should be formed under the direction, the leadership, and sovereignty of an almighty God? Absolutely. That clear understanding alone prompted the words under God to be added to our nation or one nation under God in our nation's pledge and the words in God we trust to be placed on the most popular form of governmental literature, money, in 1952 and 1954 respectively. This is Today with Jeff Vines. The message when God exits is about either the blessings from God or the apparent abandonment by God experienced by different countries around the world. Let's continue now. You say, Jeff, what are you so fired up about? Well, I, I told you not too long ago, I took my family on a vacation to Virginia. 
Monticello or Monticello, depending from what area in the country you're from. <laughs> we got up to the house. There must have been a thousand people around the grounds of the property. They were taking about 25 to 50 people in at a time. This African-American lady who was a university major, history major at the University of Virginia, takes us in. We go through Jefferson's study where there's a, a blatant copy of a Bible right there on his desk and other religious paraphernalia. She doesn't say much about that, and I'm interested in that. And then right as we're exiting the room, she makes this statement. She says, well, now we have enough information to assume that most probably Thomas Jefferson was an atheist. Now, I got to tell you something. I was so mad. Yeah, preachers can get mad. I was mad. But my wife noticed that I was, gonna, that I was mad, and she knows I have a hard time keeping my big mouth shut. So she started pinching me on the leg, and she said, we're on vacation. I said, I know we're on vacation, but that's crazy. She can't say that. She says, we're on vacation. Let it go. So I was going to let it go. But then right at the end of the tour, she said, if you have any questions about the tour, please meet me over on the bridge. To me, that was a green light, the call of God <laughs> to get involved. So I walked over to the bridge and I waited till everybody else was gone. And I asked her a simple question. I said, look, you stated that we have, that, that, that we're assuming that Thomas Jefferson is an atheist. You got to be kidding me. What historical documentation are you propagating to support that idea? And this is her response. She said to me, she said, well, we all know that Thomas Jefferson struggled with the deity of Christ. And she's right. He did. And I affirmed that. But that's totally different than saying Thomas Jefferson was an atheist. And I said that to her. And I said, what proof do you have? She said, I don't think I really need to present any and walked away. Now, let me tell you something. Is this the same Thomas Jefferson whose words are inscribed on the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C.? God, who gave us life, gave us liberty. And can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis, a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are a gift from God, that they are not to be violated, but with his wrath. Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. There's too much information from the past that supports the present conclusion that many of our founding fathers, they looked to God for leadership, for direction, and they deeply believed that it was his positive hand of providence upon this land that inevitably would make America succeed. For example, in 1837, at the age of 69, John Quincy Adams delivered a 4th of July speech on this weekend at Newburyport, Massachusetts. This is what he said. Why is it that next to the birthday of the Savior of the world, your most joyous and most venerated festival returns on this day, the 4th of July? Is it not that in the chain of human events, the birthday of the nation is indissolubly linked with the birthday of the Savior? that it forms a leading event in the progress of the gospel dispensation? Is it not that the Declaration of Independence first organized the social compact on the foundation of the Redeemer's mission on the earth? That it laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity? Benjamin Franklin, during the Constitutional Convention of 1787, said, God governs in the affairs of man. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? 
We have been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. And then John Hancock, on April 15th, 1775, during a day of fasting and humiliation and prayer with total abstinence from labor and recreation, proclaimed on that day, April 15th, that in circumstances as dark as these, when America was struggling, it becomes us as men and Christians to reflect that whilst every prudent measure should be taken to ward off the impending judgments, at the same time, all confidence must be withheld from the means we use and reposed only on that God rules in the armies of heaven. And without his whole blessing, the best of human counsels are but foolish. John Hancock is saying, on our best day, when we make the greatest of decisions, even then we still need the sovereign, providential hand of God the creator. And Patrick Henry, in his last will and testament, left this to his children. This is all the inheritance I can give you. The religion of Christ can give them one which will make them rich indeed. Our fathers were not perfect. They made mistakes, but were their hearts and wills bent toward God? Yes. Did they respect the sovereign of the universe and desperately seek his wisdom, guidance, and direction? Absolutely. Is this why America has been blessed? With all the mistakes we have made as a country, has our fear and respect of the creator God spared us from so much that the rest of the world has seen? Has God answered our prayer? Has God shed his grace on thee? And God said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will hear their land. Yeah, I'm concerned about the same things you are. I'm especially concerned about what's happening in the halls of academia across this land. And I want you to know, parents, I'm committed to your graduating seniors. Two Wednesday nights ago, I stood on this stage and I specifically addressed the graduating high school seniors. I spent about an hour and a half preparing them for what they're going to face when they go to secular colleges. Now, I'm not saying that we should stop going to USC, UCLA, Cal Poly. Yeah, let's go. In the name of heaven, let's go out as Christians and be a light shining in the darkness but you better make sure your high school student's prepared. If you're not, they're gonna get blindsided and blown out of the water. I am committed. Christ Church of the Valley is committed. If you will let me have a couple of hours with your high school senior on that Wednesday night every year, I'm gonna prepare them and explain to them how the top 10 hit list of every secular university, almost every secular university, is to debunk God, debunk the Bible, debunk truth and the transcendental signified. I won't take time to explain that, it doesn't matter. But it is not difficult to understand why in the halls of academia, all across this nation, God, the Bible, and specifically Christianity is being attacked. Listen, this is something I think we forget. Our nation is in adolescence. It's young. It is a country that right now is moving. It is moving comparatively with the rest of the world out of its teenage years. And you know what happens when you're a teenager? You desperately want to kick off the restraints you feel are holding you back. Thomas Huxley, or Aldous Huxley rather, was at least honest about all this when he said, I want the world not to have meaning. In other words, if there's no God, there's no meaning. I want a world with no God, no meaning, because a meaningless world frees me to my own erotic pursuits. And it was Stephen Jay Gould, a paleontologist at Harvard University, who echoed those same sentiments when he said, once you find out there's no superior wisdom, no superior cause, it is liberating, if not exhilarating. 
The re- listen, listen now. The reason Christianity is being attacked in this land is because it is now seen as the great inhibitor to progress. Progress being defined, being able to do what I want to do without the guilt of a moral law. So we become like little children struggling to free ourselves from the safety belt, not realizing the freedom may kill us. And so many in our nation right now, stay with me, are asking this next question. How can we do away with a sense of moral oughtness in America, thus removing the restrictions that are preventing progress? And now the attention has been turned toward Jesus. If somehow doubt can be cast on him, if it can be shown that Jesus had some private moral issues, that the pure and pristine Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus who demonstrated everything that is good and right was a fiction or figment of the imagination, then maybe, just maybe, the chains of moral restrictions can be broken in America and we can do what we want to do. And so to that end, organizations like the Jesus Seminar have been born. Moreover, in an attempt to discredit the Bible as accurate history and paint the writers of the Bible as evil conspirators, books like Holy Blood, Holy Ground came out in the late 80s, and now in modern day time, The Da Vinci Code, both of these have been born. Both of these works and a lot in between suggest with absolutely no historical proof whatsoever, just a dream world, that maybe Jesus had a secret life with Mary Magdalene. Books such as these fit into a certain category. The, I will be dumber after I read this book than I was before I picked it up category. (laughs) But in America, all you have to do is debunk Jesus. That's all you gotta do. You don't have to debunk God. If you can devane the gospel concerning the deity of Christ, take away his right to give the moral law, make him look like the person that we Americans have always wanted him to be, the American Jesus, one who's a cool guy and to be respected, but not one of authority. If we can manage that, then the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus with absolute authority, he'll fade away and we can create our own system of morality and right and wrong at best will become a matter of personal preference. Okay, I've said it. It's off my chest. I feel better whether you do or not. Thank you for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. We'll continue When God Exits next time as Pastor Jeff speaks about the Founding Fathers of America and whether their commitment to forming a God-honouring nation is the reason for America's wealth and opportunity. God is not waiting on the secular humanists to repent. He's waiting on the church to repent and to be the true church. Today with Jeff Vines. Just another way vision is connecting faith to your life. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.